the kind of macro stats are equally as insane. So we waste 40%, approximately 40% of all the food that we grow in the United States. If food waste was a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter. We use about approximately 20% of our land to grow crops that we simply throw away. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on the show today, we're going to learn about how food waste can be much more than just waste. In this episode, we explore the food waste problem in the U.S., its economic implications, and the environmental impact on climate change. We dive into Do Good Food's closed-loop system, preventing waste and reducing emissions. We learn about the growth of Do Good Chicken, partnerships with retailers, and their recognition on Fast Company's list of the world's most innovative companies for 2023. Join us for a conversation on reducing food waste, combating climate change, and shaping a better future on this episode of The Green Hour. Consider the last time you stepped into a supermarket. What brought you there and what items did you pick up? Chances are the supermarket not only had what you were specifically seeking, but also an array of other options. Now reflect on the particular item you were after. Was there only one or did you find an abundance? More likely than not, it was available in multiple quantities. Now shift your focus to the sobering reality of how much of the food stocked in grocery stores goes unconsumed before being discarded. A comprehensive study conducted by Feeding America uncovered a staggering truth. Each year, 80 million tons of food are wasted in the United States. That's equivalent to 149 billion meals. The economic toll on this wastefulness is immense, with over $440 billion worth of food being discarded annually. Astonishingly, 38% of all food in America goes to landfill. Now pause for a moment and let that sink in. 40% of all food in America goes to waste. While I may not be an economist, it's evident that profitability becomes a challenge when nearly half of your products end up as waste. But what if there was a better way? Say a process that took food waste and converted it into something else to be useful. Joining us on the Green Hour is someone who has tackled the problem of food waste head on. Justin K. Mine is the CEO of Do Good Foods, a company that produces sustainable meat by diverting food waste from supermarkets to use as animal feed. The company developed a closed loop system to convert grocery food that can't be sold or donated into nutrient dense animal feed. Do Good Foods estimated it has diverted at least 27 million pounds of food waste from landfills since 2021. Prior to creating Do Good Foods, Justin's first company built, owned, and operated over $400 million of net metered solar projects in the Northeastern United States. 
Justin and his brother's company builds on the family's 40-year heritage of solving macro environmental problems through building large infrastructure solutions. To date, they have built over $4 billion of national infrastructure. Do Good Foods was ranked by Fast Company amongst the top 50 most innovative companies in the world. And K-Mine was also named one of Forbes 30 under 30 for food. And he has received the Clean Tech Equity Award presented by the Prince of Monaco. And he is a board member of Earth Day, the largest civic movement around bettering the planet. Food waste is one of the biggest problems of our time. It is listed under goal 12 of the sustainable development goals. And for us to create a better future, it starts with finding solutions to food waste. When we talk about entrepreneurs and we hear, you know, the stories of how people build their businesses, build their startups. A lot of times when you hear these stories, you hear about people doing it by themselves. Um, and then eventually they bring more people on board. But it sounds like with you, um, you, you had a different kind of way of doing it. And it was actually with your family. And this is something that I, that I think is really, really cool. It seems like you and your family just kind of identify problems and just go headfirst into them and, and find solutions. Yeah. So as you mentioned, it's definitely a family business. Um, so my dad literally started off essentially as a plumber uh, installing wastewater heat recovery systems and boiler rooms at all the paper mills and greenhouses around New York, New Jersey. He did that from age 13 to 18. Um, in his mid-20s, he was able to uh, get GE to finance about $800 million behind him as he built about 600 megawatts worth of natural gas cogeneration facilities. Because at that time, you needed a qualified site and a qualified facility to be the steam host. Well, what is the steam host? It's a paper mill or greenhouse. So he actually knew all the boiler room guys and was able to walk through the back door of the production facility as well as the front door and actually get those contracts executed. So at a very early age, recognize it's about rolling up your sleeves and getting things done, but it's also about walking through the back door and treating everyone with respect. And it was actually the boiler room guys that ended up making his career. Um, and so that those power plants actually what was amazingly environmentally progressive was we brought the parts per, mil per million down drastically, which then set the new standard. No new power plants could be built now over that number. And so it was kind of that pure DNA of environmental sustainability. And of course, natural gas at that time was amazingly environmentally progressive in the mid 80s and using the steam to provide that cheap uh, uh, input to the paper mills and greenhouses was also a circular economy. Mm. So uh, the kind of circular economy, building infrastructure, coming from nothing, figuring out how do you build large scale infrastructure and create those win-wins has kind of been part of the family background forever. We then, uh, we sold those in 1994. In 1995, uh, Clinton deregulated the telecom industry, similar to the deregulation of the energy market. Uh, and many of the, so those same partners came back to us and said, we want you to be the family to help build, own, and operate a telecom infrastructure platform for them. And you mentioned we just kind of jump into problems and try to solve them. We knew, no we knew nothing about telecom. Fast forward three years later, in the mid-90s, we were the largest privately held telecom company across the country. We built infrastructure across 40 cities, deployed almost $2.5 billion, had 1,500 employees. And we carried essentially one third of the nation's dialogue. When you had to listen to that Dan did it a Dan Dan to log on to the internet, it was all coming through us. So uh, infrastructure and kind of that 
which we like to say entrepreneur infrastructure development is a very unique dynamic where most people don't actually understand what it means to build the first facility and then figure out how do you duplicate that nationwide overnight uh, in a plug and play model. And so we wanted to really bring that focus into sustainability and recognize that we need to do things at scale. We need to build the infrastructure that can actually transition over our supply chains, our energy systems to a more sustainable solution. So uh, my brother, my dad and I's first company that we all worked on together was uh, in kind of 2010 timeframe. And we launched a solar platform that ended up building, owning and operating. I mean, I literally sat outside the office and cold called every landowner or building owner in New Jersey and New York for three years. Um, So we kind of worked our way up. But what we ended up doing was building about $500 million of solar projects, uh, about 125 megawatts of net metered. So providing cheap electricity to major companies, companies like Pfizer, Eli Lilly, Amazon. We made Six Flags the first amusement park in the world to be 100% powered by solar. So some big, cool ideas. We got one, we got and in 2015 and 16, one of the first battery storage grants for demand response and frequency response. We were working on solar co-generation models down in the Caribbean. So some really kind of progressive things of kind of keeping that entrepreneur spirit, even though solar had gotten down the cost curve and kind of massively adopted, which was fantastic for the environment, but kind of losing its entrepreneur steam. And so about six years ago is when we collectively said as a family, well, let's focus on creating closed loop systems at scale. And let's go and look at some of the biggest problems of currently going into the landfill. So we launched a big cardboard upcycling business. We launched a big carbon negative concrete business that's now starting to scale. And also, of course, food waste. Um, and so literally, we, we kind of look at these big problems, recognize that we've also seen some of the and been in the room with some of the largest corporations, seeing their supply chain, seeing their real problems, not just at a micro level, but okay, how do you transition over the largest supply chains without asking anyone to change your habits, change your operations, and make it economically viable and feasible? Um, That's kind of where we as a family like to play. And we're truly trying to be focused on how do we bring sustainability to scale across the country? So it's funny. I'll say it's funny we're having this conversation because I've done a lot of research um, because I'm actually talking to someone I guess it's in a, in a few weeks. Um, her name is Paula Caballero, um, and she's actually known as the, the grandmother behind the SDGs. And, you know, a lot of research has been going into this to, to this talk, um, and I'm, I've been reading her book. And one of the big things that the SDGs, one of the goals, um, I think goal, goal number 12, talks about um, food waste and talks about, you know, how can we consume and, and produce in a way that, that's beneficial to the environment. So, what I want to get into now is talking about food waste. And actually, you know, before we got on this call, I, I read this statistic, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that says that each person in the U.S. wastes approximately one uh, pound of food per day. And if you compound that, I don't know what the population currently is um, in the U.S., but let's just say it's 330 million people. That's 330 million pounds of food waste per day. I mean, just sit back and think about that for a second. That, that's just one day in the U.S., one part of the world, that's how much food waste. So it sounds like, uh, 
you and your family, like I said, you see these big problems and you go head first and just tackle them. Food waste is definitely a big problem. Um, so could you talk about, you know, how how you see food waste and why this is such a big problem, especially in the United States? Yeah. So uh, the stat that you mentioned, um, the kind of macro stats are equally as insane. So we waste 40%, approximately 40% of all the food that we grow in the United States. If food waste was a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter. We use about approximately 20% of our land to grow crops that we simply throw away. And what's important to kind of think through that is you look at some of the other macro problems, Colorado River drying up. Well, where do we grow a lot of our crops, right? And 20% of all that water, that energy, that resources that went into growing that food is also going to waste. It's not just the food that we need to be concentrated on. It's also everything downstream to actually produce that food, right? And worst off is that a majority of that food goes to landfill where it decomposes. And that is where it creates methane gas, which based upon a 20-year life cycle is over 80 times more potent than CO2. Methane has contributed to over 50% of the global anthropogenic increases of, of temperature. If we want to solve climate change, we need to solve methane. Not a bunch of fans out there trying to sequester CO2. There's point source methane problems, food waste, rice patties, beef, and leaking oil wells that if we can solve, we can actually really reduce climate change effect immediately because of the potency of methane. And so we kind of look at saying, okay, well, what's, we got to bring environmental realism to this, right? It's nice to invest into a bunch of fancy technologies and have a good cocktail conversation. It's the other thing of how are we going to actually save the planet and how are we going to upcycle our resources and maximize our resources? Climate change is a resource depletion perspective. Resources are going down, population's going up, and there's a tremendous inefficiency in the middle. So the way that we were tackling food waste was the first and best usage of food is to be always fed to humans. Every time, no matter what, um, we need to be maximizing food to humans across the country. And there's a tremendous amount of food deserts, uh, access to good, affordable, healthy foods. To your point, we throw away a lot though as well. And when you think about what you throw away, most of that food is actually still high quality food. No different than supermarkets. They recognize that if an apple falls on the ground or if it's reached its sell-by date, you, you would still have it in your refrigerator for another two or three days, but they have to throw it away. So what we were doing was we were providing them designated bins that were actually kept in the cold chain so that we were actually preserving the cold temperature of that food, aka preserving the nutrient value of that food, and picking it up every day or two. Thereby, no different than your refrigerator, we were able to upcycle high-quality surplus grocery food. This was not waste. This was surplus grocery food. Food that you and I, if we, if we grew up on a farm, we take and provide to our chickens and pigs and pets out back and that's how we used to do it. We used to take our leftovers on our dinner plate and feed our animals out back. And that was our own circular economy. So what we did is say, great, well, we got to build that. But we got to build that at a scale that can work with the largest retailers across the country and actually solve their problem. So we were picking up all their surplus grocery food for free. We were bringing it back to the, one of the first of its kind, um, $125 million production facility that we built from the ground up. 
um, where we were able to upcycle up to 160 tons of surplus grocery food a day into a nutriently consistent pathogen-free dried animal feed product. And then that feed product could go right into the existing feed mill infrastructure of every major farmer across the country. And what was so exciting about that was that not only were the chickens getting a better, healthier product, but that we were actually able to quantify the benefits of sustainability, where each do-good chicken, the name of the brand, saved three pounds of greenhouse gases and four pounds of surplus grocery food. So now you link it to the consumer, where the quicker you can now consume this product, the quicker we can solve food waste, using our food system to solve our environmental problems without asking consumers to change their habits. We will not change our habits, the majority of the public. We will not reduce our way out of climate change. We need to now use this consumer model to actually now be a net positive for the world, not a net negative. I, li- I like the term you use, closed loop system, because that's exactly, I mean, what, what you created. Um, taking, taking, you know, food waste from, let's say, a supermarket and taking that to your facility, breaking that down and then transitioning that into animal feed. That, that is w- what I see as a circular economy. And it actually wasn't until I'd say earlier this year that my viewpoint on the circular economy kind of changed. Before, I thought the circular economy was just focused on waste. Um, And I was like, okay, I mean, the circular economy, let's just figure out what to do with waste. And then that's it. But earlier this year, the more research I did, the more that I found out that the circular economy actually deals with the beginning of the process as well, the production of the food. So that gets me to the question, you know, when we're talking about food waste, you know, how does food waste occur at various stages of the food supply chain? Because obviously, I mean, we can understand at the very end of the supply chain, you know, when food's sitting at a, at a grocery store at a supermarket and it's, you know, it's expired and it's wasted, we can understand that part of it. But how about the waste at the other various stage of, stages of the supply chain? You know, how does, how does that occur? Yeah, so uh, ReFed is actually a great organization that has a lot of these specific stats. Um, so I urge everyone to go to their website, uh, ReFed. And, uh, but yeah, to your point, waste happens all across from literally the time that we're growing the product all the way through the distribution. So the farmers uh, typically cull a, per, a, large, uh, a percentage of their produce or, or products on the farm. So I believe it's around 10 to 15% of what is produced is actually just left on the farm. So there's waste there. And many companies are now starting to recognize that those farmers need some help. They've grown that crop. And for whatever reason, aesthetics or life of that product was not picked to then go to the supermarket or to the next food service location. Um, So there's tremendous companies that are working on upcycling those products, giving the farmer a a payment for the strawberries that are not uh, being put into the packages and actually upcycling them to better, healthier products, whether it be fruit snacks or um, uh, 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 drinks or whatever it may be. So that's kind of where we first start off. Then there's some uh, distribution difficulties not so much in the United States. Um, we do have, obviously, the right cold chain and logistics perspective, but you go across the world and uh, a lot of countries have difficulty from a cold chain distribution perspective. Um, and then the food service companies, the ones that get these large pallets of product 
um, they have waste because what is happening with society, which is also now translated into retailers, is that consumers or your customers expect every product every day throughout the entire year. There's really no seasonality anymore. And so with seasonality or without seasonality and without the understanding of the food system where you shouldn't be able to get every product at all time throughout the years is now driven to the complete opposite where if you don't have every product every time throughout the year, I'm going to your competitor. And so thereby inherently it is impossible to understand consumer desires on a daily basis and consumption habits. Same thing with food service. So they were, there will always be waste within those two locations so long as you as a consumer desire, especially in the United States, to walk into any supermarket at any time throughout the year and expect that you can get pretty much everything at all times. And it has to be fresh. It has to be looking good. And that's it. And unfortunately, that's just the reality of the mindset. And I think so much of the sustainability initiatives and thought leaders sometimes fail to just recognize the consumer. I, I, I am, for example, plant-based proteins. I love all plant-based proteins. Yes, we need to get better nutrition. Yes, we need to get better uh, 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 production. Um, and yet, I think the messaging has always been wrong. You can't produce enough plant-based proteins to even really make a dent in the animal-based protein system. And instead of saying, hey, we are the replacement, we are the change that everyone has to get to, should have, they should have marketed it more as a complementary solution. Yes, this is better for the environment. Yes, we need to reduce our animal consumption. Absolutely. But it's going to be a transition. And just saying that, hey, we all got to do this or we all got to do that and that's evil and that's bad and this is good. That's part of the problem of sustainability. We all need to recognize that no different than the consumer walking into the retailer. People yell at retailers all the time. Why, why do you even waste? It's like, well, okay, but go back to you as a consumer. Do you want to see everything on the aisle? Oh, yeah, I do. Okay, well, then therefore there will be waste. So let's create solutions for that and recognize the reality of the current systems and the reasoning behind that. Not necessarily just saying we got to solve this and it can't be anything and you're, you're evil and we need to create the good here. Yeah, um, to your point, I mean, we as a society, I think more and more every year, you know, we do consume more. Um, we need more. You go to the grocery stores and it's kind of mind boggling to me when you go to the grocery stores and you just see lines and lines of the same product. Let's just say, let's say a product like like pasta, for example, you might have the same pasta product. And there might be 20, 20 of them in a row. And looking at it, it's like, what, what in the world? Like, like, why is there so much? There's no way that in our small community, all of this is getting eaten. And you have this massive grocery store with all different kinds of products. And it's all because, again, we, we consume so much and we need so much. Uh, or do we really need so much? We really just, yeah. <laughs> we just want it. Uh, and to your point of, you know, if, if grocery stores don't have that or supermarkets don't have that, you just go to the competitor because they'll have it um, because we're it, it's, it's yep. the economy, right? It, it's our system. So going from the consumer and then looking more into the supermarkets themselves, obviously we're talking about waste and with supermarkets, they're going to have waste in the current system that they're using. 
So could you talk about, and I don't know if you know a number or statistic on this, but I'm actually very interested in this, but talk about, you know, the, the economic cost of food waste in the retail sector, but from your view and from the business that you're, that you run, you know, what is that um, economic cost yeah. of food I mean, waste? Supermarkets are spending tens of millions of dollars a year to get rid of their food waste. Um, and that's not including kind of any negative uh, press that's created uh, as a lot of people kind of now call attention to it. So it is just an economic burden and cost. They have to pay someone to get rid of it. And then they send it to landfill where then they have to pay tip fees or composting or anaerobic digestion, which if you look at the EPA food hierarchy, it is not a very good use of that food. Food should be used as food. Um, and so our model that we created was that we, we would actually pick up all that food for free and convert it into our dried animal feed. And then we would sell back the brand back to the retailer called Do Good Chicken and kind of create a circular economy. Um, but where we did was we also priced our chicken, which is how we made our money, uh, at prices that are within line of all of our kind of competitors in the no antibiotic ever chicken category. So they would then make their same margin on it. And this whole closed loop system would be amazingly profitable. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the concept and the theory that we created. Um, so you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars when you look at from the farm to the food service, to the distribution, to the retailer, and then to the household as well. Households are, as you mentioned, rep, represent, I think you said it was about a pound of food waste per day per person across the United States. So there's a tremendous cost associated with all of this. and I'm not sure that even those costs have started to really calculate the methane that is produced by food waste when it goes to landfill, which is a huge burden to society. As mentioned, if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter. US, China, then food waste. We're talking about a major country in emissions from just food going to landfill. And so there's a huge amount of costs, not just from true economic burden, but then also all through the environment. So, so you mentioned do good chickens, right? Or do good chicken right there. And, and I'm glad that you did because I wanted to, to get into that next, the next kind of segment that we talk about. Um, so do good foods is what we've been talking about. Um, you've been mentioning a little bit um, and talking about the closed loop system and how you're taking food waste and then transitioning that into dried animal feed. And you've created this circular system. But I, I think y'all launched Do Good Chicken this year. Yep. So could you talk about a little bit more about what Do Good Chicken is um, and how that is making an impact? Yeah, so the first year that we launched, uh, we upcycled about a 40 million pounds of surplus grocery food, saved about 5,000 tons of CO2. Um, and we started to outcompete many of the major established competitors in the poultry aisle uh, within the first year. Um, we did 2 billion brand impressions. We were selling at all the major retailers and food service companies across the country, 600 corporate campuses and many others. Um, so what was fascinating is that 90% of consumers are raising their hands saying, what can I do to help? Just don't change my habits and don't make me pay more. Great. Well, if it's priced the same and tastes the same, if not tastes better, why wouldn't you now do good for the planet? So I think, uh, Although Do Good kind of went through some some difficulties in the most recent kind of couple months, um, I think what it what it shows is that we can truly bring sustainability to scale 
we can bring it through the existing and established supply chains. Many of these largest companies are desiring solutions specifically also around scope three emissions, which is what we helped pioneer, which was we ha- we did real-time carbon accounting, one of the first USDA approved third-party verified ISO certified equations that actually validated it, established it, and then we could actually provide uh, carbon receipts to the end customers to lower their scope three emissions. This was revolutionary and uh, finally empowering all of us as a consumer to help use our food system to solve our environmental problems. The stat that we always said was that if one out of every five pieces of chicken was a do-good chicken, we could have solved food waste in five years. That's it. Like, let's do it. And we're still going to eat chicken. Chicken's increasing at 6% year over year. That's not going away, right? We slaughter 175 million chicken a week in the United States right? If one out of every five of them was a do-good chicken, we would solve food waste. So yes, we can lower animal consumption, but we also need to have environmental realism where we can now use that scale to solve our really big problems quickly. And so that's kind of the ethos of the family uh, across the the platforms that we have um, as to how do you create solutions that fit into the existing infrastructure of the largest companies across the the United States and not ask them to do anything different, but now provide them products that actually have a scope three reduction and a net positive for the planet. Yeah. Scope three emissions. That's, that's something that my company that I work with, that's something that we are, are just now reporting for the first time. So I've done a little bit of research into, you know, exactly what exactly constitutes scope three emissions, but it looks like, for a lot of large companies, the majority of their emissions are actually coming in that scope three area. And I think I could be butchering the step, but I think it was, I looked at this last week, I think it was two thirds um, on average of, of these large companies. That's where the majority of their emissions come from. Um, 100%. And three. if you're a true environmentalist, or if you actually have a chief sustainability officer and you're not talking about scope three emissions, then you're not doing, in, in my opinion, any justice to the climate change move it, movement. And it's more just kind of, high level BS. Um, And so it all comes down to how are you producing the products that you are creating and selling? It's not about just your headquarters and your employees that, hey, they get a renewable energy at their headquarters. That's great. That's fantastic. But that's high level, the cherry on top. What about the whole cake that you're creating that is needing to absolutely be focused on? Um, and they're even having talks about scope for emissions uh, as well, getting down into the supply chain. And these big companies need to recognize that they can change the world, that they need the right solutions, they need it economically viable, and they need it scaled. But they can actually change the world if they care to, with focusing on the scope three emissions and mandating or uh, helping their suppliers become better. And that's the only way we help solve this climate change problem, it's not focused on really scope one and scope two, to your point, two thirds or even up to 95% of some of the biggest companies' emissions come from scope three. Yeah, to, to your point about, I mean, if you're a large company and you're not focusing on scope three, I mean, what are you doing? I mean, this is this is what's happening. And right now, I mean, companies like, like ours, for example, we voluntarily reported our scope three emissions. 
but the SEC is saying that, you know, they, they might put something in the works that, you know, large companies, I don't know if it was S&P companies or Fortune 500 companies or just publicly traded companies, they're going to require them to start reporting yep. scope three emissions. So it's not only a, a thing about, okay, if you're a true environmentalist, it's like, you better you better find a plan for this because the SEC is going to force you and, and make you do and, this. And uh, which is great, I think. So a lot of these companies have made pledges. I've talked to pretty much all of them. And most of them will pretty much tell you, I have no idea how I'm going to get there. I've made a pledge. I hope I get there. I don't really have a clear plan, an economically viable plan, and an implementation plan that's actually going to get me there. They're kind of hoping and praying because everyone else made a pledge and they get a nice little stock increase. Well, okay. So part of our mm-hmm. family's approach is that we are now expanding our, our infrastructure platforms. We are working with any of these big companies to say, identify the five or six technologies that you want at scale. And what's missing in the marketplace is the link of who can be the entrepreneur infrastructure developer to bring all of these products to scale to then tell the public companies, hey, you want to transition over your five largest manufacturing facilities to eliminate X, Y, and Z ingredient or to change over your operations. We can now go collectively build that infrastructure at scale scaling that entrepreneur idea to the next level and then link it to the biggest companies and say, here's your solution to lower scope three emissions and to change your supply chain, but not change any of your operations or your distribution, which is hugely beneficial. And so we went out as a, as a family and we talked to over 200 private equity firms. Zero of them had an engineer on staff. So how are you looking at these inventors, scientists, agronomists, chemists that are working on world-changing ideas and that need to go from the pilot scale to the large infrastructure scale to actually meet and adhere to, to your point, the Fortune 500 companies' pledges that actually are saying, hey, bring me X solution and I'm all in. Okay, so there's a missing gap in the marketplace, climate change developers that actually understand what it means to build, own, and operate infrastructure and have the engineering skill and talent to go into the pilot facility and say, hey, let's bring this now to the next level. That's really what we as a family have collectively been doing. Where we as a family are driving towards is the appreciation of how hard this really is to change the incumbents to address all of that. What we have done is pioneered a solution that's at scale that validates to every other climate change and better for you ingredient across the board, whether it be textiles or food or energy, that consumers care, they want to be a part of the solution. The big companies are willing to play with us so long as we can create the right input, meaning you're not changing their operations, you're not asking them to do anything different, and everyone's collectively making money. And I think that is what the overarching uh, legacy of what Do Good has created is validating that. I went around four years ago to every major uh, poultry company saying, hey, buy my feed, buy my feed. I'll just build the infrastructure. And every one of them said, go prove to me that consumers care. Go prove to me that the world cares about fighting food waste and combating climate change. Great, we did that, right? And so hopefully that legacy is validating to every other climate solution 
whether it be, like I said, textiles or cosmetics or whatever it may be, that a real solution with the real quantified scope three numbers can actually have a role in society. And quite frankly, consumers desire it and want it. But you got to be honest, transparent, and connected to bringing sustainability to scale. I'm a big believer that, yeah, we need all the, the local solutions and all the nice kind of, okay, nice little businesses that are operating. We got to work with the top 20 companies in the world if we want to actually solve climate change. That's it. They, they are responsible for a majority of the emissions. A hundred and a thir- 130 of them just recently signed a pledge that stated climate change is real because it's affecting the price points and their supply chain. Well, great. Now, this era of all climate change solutions and where we as a family are going to be playing in is helping each one of these amazing solutions get to scale and build the infrastructure, not the first or second facility, but those solutions need 20 or 30 facilities as quick and as big and as broad as possible to actually enact the change that we all know needs to happen, not in the next 20 years, but in the next five or seven years. Yeah, you talk about the top 20 companies, that's really where the majority of change happens. You can make change on the local scale, but ultimately you have companies like, let's say the Amazons, the Walmarts, these massive, massive companies. They have the impact that can really stretch across not only the U.S., but across the entire world. Um, one, one thing that I know the Amazon's done is they created the Climate Pledge. And I know 400-something companies have, have signed on to that. Our, my company I work with is one of them. Um, so I've, I've done a little research into that. Um, but I think, I think when, you, when, when you go to and look at these top 20 companies, and you're talking about things like, let's say, your company, Do Good Foods, for them, it's like they're saying, okay, it's got to make sense economically. Um, we know you have a great environmental story. We know it's great for the environment, but economically, it's got to make sense. But I, I bring up that conversation on economic versus environment because a lot of times um, what I've seen in sustainability is you have great products, you have great initiatives in sustainability, but they don't make sense economically and yep. they kind of get forgotten. Um, I just wanted to say that because those top 20 companies, it's got to make sense. The only way it has the greatest impact in the world is to have the greatest economics. Because if you have the greatest economics, then therefore Mm -hmm. you can actually have impact. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to get to a price parity perspective. That's the most uh, troublesome problem for all of these climate solutions. Everyone's at a pilot scale of the first production facility and it's ramping up. And yet the market is looking at commodity price points for a majority of these things, which you're talking about petrochemicals, you're talking about the agriculture industry that's subsidized for the past 60, 70 years. And the economies of scale are just sometimes unsurmountable from a price point perspective. So where, where we kind of centered around was, okay, yeah, you can be priced right in line with a a premium ish product below organic or whatever it may be. Um, and consumers want to pay extra 10, 15% for that product typically. Um, but that's kind of where you kind of draw the line. So I think, uh, there's a lot of room, which is kind of going back to the core thesis of the family. How do you get sustainability to scale? Because that drives economies of scale. That's the only way that you get there. So I think big companies actually can play a huge role here. They can work with 
companies like us that can develop the infrastructure, find the right solutions. And then if they said, hey, you get to this price point, I will take X volume long term, that becomes a product financeable structure that makes sense. And so that's where I think, hopefully, where you can work with these largest companies, address their solutions that they know that they have or that they want, but that they can't get to a price point and a volume that we're going to be kind of making that link to them to help build that the, the, the infrastructure too. And, and the last thing I'll, I'll say here, Justin, is for our listeners out there that, you know, they want to make an impact and they're hearing your story and saying, wow, Justin just, he sees problems and, and jumps on them and, and finds solutions. And they might be saying, I want to be just like that. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know how to get there. Like, I don't know where to start. Um, so what advice could you have to those people that, you know, that have an entrepreneurial spirit, but just don't know how to get started um, in, in that way of things? I think uh, I was talking to someone else the other day about this, which is if you care about an in- industry and you're trying to solve a problem, um, call up a lot of the people that just recently retired from the industry. That's actually how I got a lot of my in- insight and thought processes where you can leverage 30, 40 years of experience in the know-how of the industry reading textbooks, learning YouTube videos, all that type of stuff gives you a good portion of it. But if you want to get really into it and figure out from an entrepreneur perspective, what's really going to sell, what's really going to get these companies to start to move, you got to talk to a lot of people that have just recently come out of the industry. Fortunately, a lot of the baby boomers are now saying, great, we kind of destroyed most of the world. And now in our late 60s or early 70s, okay, how do I help out? Uh, and how do I help kind of write the ship in a good way? And so I got a lot of my insight, knowledge, uh, and understanding of what I should be doing from 30 or 40 years of experience. And, th- and that's invaluable from when you're trying to start to build a company. Otherwise, you're going at it, which you need to as an entrepreneur, just jump in and start figuring it out, start having conversations, start figuring out your product market fit in our six different businesses and we have a whole lot of other ones like lollyware which is taking seaweed as a and pelletizing it and putting it through existing extrusion and injection molding equipment to help reduce single-use plastics with 100 percent seaweed um but like all of these companies we never had a business plan it was here's a mission here's an idea and let's go try to figure it out and solve it and so you got to just trust your own intuition and in your own ingenuity that this is a problem for a reason. No one's ever solved it in a way that's really uh, unique and go off and try to figure it out, but learn a lot from others. 